Imagine this as a dating site profile. Young man, 26. No formal education, but can speak three languages. Currently in third marriage, four kids, one of them a hunchback. Many illegitimate kids. Many. Ambitions to run the whole of Western Europe and unite Germany and France. No one would take that person seriously. But then, none of us live in 800 AD. That man is Charlemagne, first real king to emerge after the Dark Ages, and the founding father of all the European kingdoms. Charlemagne is the great emperor of the Romans. His reign signified, I think, the end of the Dark Ages, and for many people, the true beginning of the medieval era. He was uh, emperor of Rome, but he was also known as the king of the Franks. He lived from about 748 AD to 814 AD. And during the early Middle Ages, he united the majority of Western and Central Europe. He was the first recognized emperor to rule from Western Europe since the fall of the Western Roman Empire. And the expanded Frankish state that Charlemagne founded is better known as the Carolinian Empire. He was later canonized by anti-Pope Pascal III, but he was crowned by the famous Pope Leo in Rome. So there's an interesting story about his ancestors, which we'll get to in a moment or two, but he has been called the father of Europe. He united, as I said earlier, most of Western Europe for the first time since the classical era and united parts of Europe that had never been under Frankish or Roman rule. And it spurred the Carolinian Renaissance, which was a period of energetic cultural and intellectual activity within the Western church, to which he was very closely allied. When he died in 814, he was laid to rest in the Aachen Cathedral, where you can still go and visit his shrine. That was where he was eventually buried. But in between is the part we're interested in. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host in Blind History, an official fan of history, a big history nerd like me, and also the MD of Taylor Blinds and Shutters, could only be Anthony Medra. How are you, sir? Very well, and you, Gareth? Awesome. I'm so pleased we're doing Charlemagne because I know he's one of your favorite ones. And I didn't realize when I went into doing the research around Charlemagne, what a horrible time the 800s AD were. Yeah, it was a very difficult time. And I think he was a big beacon, almost like a lighthouse. And people gravitated towards that. So he made a massive difference. But he is my favorite because, you know, it was born out of the fragmented and finally remnants of the Roman Empire, as you alluded to, especially the Western Roman Empire. And Gareth, just briefly, what I always like to look back at, where are their ancestry and where have they come from? Mm. And I found that extremely interesting and actually quite exciting. Are you talking about his grandfather, Charles Martel, or are you talking even further back? I'm talking further back, around the 400s, um, and we spoke about it in previous podcasts. So the Roman Empire was disintegrating with plagues and also the barbarians. So barbarians were termed by the Romans anybody that wasn't Roman. And Childric, who was, inverted commas, a barbarian at the time, he basically was chief of what became the Franks and, you know, the loose set of tribes. But his son, and often they talk about his son, Clover I, as, as being the father of the Franks. And he basically pulled all of these tribes together into one relatively strong unit. 
and he was very, very successful. And he married a very, very strong lady um, with, with maybe an unfortunate name. I'm not sure. I think it was Clitoris. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what was her real name? Come on. Clitoris. How do you spell that? C-L-O-T-R-L-I-S. <laughs> Apart from that horrible name, you've touched on one or two other things that are interesting. The tribe Franks, the, the Franks, are the people who eventually gave their name to France. That's where France gets its name from. And Clovis I, who you mentioned just now, Clovis eventually in the Frankish dialect, which became French, the language, became Louis. So Clovis is actually Louis. And that name persisted through the French royal family right up to the 1900s. And uh, I think actually the head of the Bourbon family now is also a Prince Louis. So it's amazing how Clovis leads to Louis and throughout French history was prominent. The other thing that's interesting is these kings you're talking about were called the Merovingians. And there is obviously Dan Brown in all of his books uh, talks about the Merovingians because there was this fictional lineage of Jesus of Nazareth that is supposed to have found its ultimate fruit in the Merovingian kings of France. And while they started well, and you mentioned Clovis, they didn't end so well. They ended up being these simpering, weak, they called them faux kings. They were essentially just ceremonial. They were like puppets. And the people who really had the power in that time were the mayors of the palaces. And it turns out that Charlemagne's family comes from the mayors of the palaces of the two major provinces, which are called Neustria and Austrasia. Um, those sound like they're not places in France, but they're actually in northern France. And that's where the power came from, those mayors of the palaces. And Charlemagne's father, Pepin the Short, Pepin's another name that will come up a number of times during this discussion. He was the mayor of both of those palaces during the reign of the last Merovingian king, a really weak chap called Childeric III, who they eventually ended up sending to a monastery. So it wasn't the lineage that started with Clover, but ultimately in the end it was Charles the Hammer or Martel, the grandfather of Charlemagne. He was actually very, very strong, hence the name Hammer. And he did a lot of conquering, especially when the, the Spanish tried to come into his area. Well, you say the Spanish, but actually it was the Moors. And at that point, Spain was largely a caliphate of the Muslim world, and that was controlled from Baghdad. And Charles Martel was the first real Christian leader in Western Europe to fight against the Ottomans or the Turks or the, the Muslims, the caliphate of the time. And that's how he made his name, Charles Martel. That was Charlemagne's grandfather. Ultimately, in the end, it was a very strong lineage and not the weak aristocracy that came from Clovis I. Absolutely. Now, Charles Martel might not have only lent his name to Charlemagne. He obviously gave him uh, the reputation that the family would build on. But Charlemagne's name is interesting because his real name was obviously Charles as well. And that is the name for king in most countries. The Poles call their king Krull, which comes from Karl. The Ukraines, Korol. The Czechs, Kral. The Slovaks, Kral. The Hungarians, Kirali the Lithuanians, Karalis, the Latvians, Karals, and even the Macedonians, the Bulgarians, the Romanians, the Serbs and Croats, the Turks even say Kral for a king. Now, this develops parallels to the Caesars. You know, the term Caesar lent itself to Kaiser, to Tsar in Russia. And it's interesting that, that Charlemagne was the prototype for kingdom from that point on. 
Yes, 100%. And incredibly, if we had to look at when he came in, he wasn't just a conqueror. He was true to form a king. Um, what was very, very important was his preservation of antiquity, love to learn, converted most of Europe to Christianity, ultimately. And I think the biggest legacy of all, you know, people talk about him so much, even Napoleon talked about him and Hitler talked about him, but the biggest legacy that he left was he took the seat of power of Europe back into the West and into the area of Germany and France, where historically it had always been out of Rome and later on Constantinople. And basically the whole geopolitical shift that was created by Charlemagne to bring the seat of power into Aachen, as you mentioned earlier, where he was buried. And just at that time, during those periods, the barbarian hinterland, or it was just seen as this dark, scary place with these tribes. Constantly that, warring tribes, yeah. Yeah, that would eat people and would worship strange animals. And so he changed that completely. And I think that's obviously very much where you get where he's the father of Europe. You know, you mentioned something really important here, and that is that the context of the times were mixed. I mean, we, we look at the Middle Ages now, we see this this period of chivalry. And while Charlemagne and his court eventually became the inspiration for the legends of King Arthur, and people don't know that, but that was part of what contributed to English myth and legend around what kingship was. It was a really awful time. I mean, you mentioned these warring tribes, but honestly, I mean, the women were as fearsome as the men. There was no learning. There was no real written language in Western Europe at that point, because the only people who could write were the monks, and they were mostly writing in Latin. People were as backward as, you know, we would look at, at prehistory now and say, how embarrassing that our ancestors were running around on all fours. But the Dark Ages were not a great period for, for Europe. And quite apart from all the violence and the nastiness of this constantly warring part of the world, there was no established hierarchy. There was no established law. There was no established religion. So you've got to imagine that coming out of that, Charlemagne made a massive impression on the world. He managed to drag a bunch of barbarians, as you and the Romans call them, into a period of some civilization. Yeah, 100%. I mean, standardizing currency, serious improvement of agriculture and trade. He pulled um, Europe out of the Dark Ages, as you rightfully said earlier. He was that beacon of light and a massively powerful individual that changed the course of history. You also mentioned how he put such an emphasis on education, and he himself was well-educated and could speak probably three languages. His children were all raised in, especially his daughters, actually, because at that stage, women were really you know, not taken terribly seriously. But he raised them the way his parents had raised him. And they were taught skills in accord with their aristocratic status. So they were they were trained in the men anyway in riding and weaponry and embroidery, spinning and weaving for his daughters, and also language, philosophy, history. You mentioned a little bit earlier his dad, Pippin. Pippin the first was actually Pippin the third, which became very confusing. <laughs> but he was the first king. They were mayors of the palace, the, the other Pippins, Charles Martel's dad and granddad. But he was called Pippin the Short, and people don't really know he wasn't that short. They say he could be the younger, he could he kept his hair short because they liked the hair long. There's lots of different reasons why he was called Pippin the Short. But Charlemagne himself, and they verified it when they opened his tomb, was over six foot. They reckon around six foot two. 
So tall, broad-shouldered, but had a shrill voice, which often <laughs> surprised people. So he looked like Al Gore, but he sounded like Hillary Clinton. Exactly. That's what, that's what I <laughs> well, he had a son. You talk about physical attributes. His eldest son with a woman called Himmeltrude, not a great name either. His son was called Pippin the Hunchback, um, his eldest son, and he did have a hunchback. And as a result of that hunchback, they say that he may have been counted out of the succession. It turns out that Pippin the Hunchback's story is not as beautiful as Charlemagne's, and I'll very quickly give you a precy of that. He basically was living in his father's court. He was the eldest son, and for a long time, Charlemagne showed him affection and care. He was even considered as one of the successors. But he made the mistake of rebelling against his father. He tried to organize a coup and actually tried to have Charlemagne murdered. And one of Charlemagne's servants told him about this. And so he held a trial, all these people who'd broken their oath of office to serve the king. They were all executed except Pepin the Hunchback, who was sent off to a monastery. This seems to have been a kind of punishment at that time. You were what they called tonsured. In other words, they would take you, they'd shave most of your hair off, they'd leave you with that funny donut of hair that you've seen in medieval paintings, and they'd send you to a monastery where you would spend your last days praying, worshipping, and transcribing the Bible. And what was the tough side of Charlemagne with regards to when we talk about the monks and we talk about religion was that they were very, very strict at that time. If you didn't go to church on a particular day, there was capital punishment. No, it'd kill you. Or if there wasn't tithe, they could kill you. Or if you didn't contribute volunteering to mow, not mow the lawn, cut the grass <laughs> or whatever it is, they could kill you. So it was actually very serious. They were very, very strict on religion and how you practiced it. Well, for people who think that Islam is the more violent of the religions, I will assure you that at this time, Islam was the more open, the more civilized, the more intellectually aware, the more, uh, the, the far more thoughtful of the religions at this point, because Christianity was behaving in the worst possible sense. And, and Islam was civilizing the Western world in some ways. I mean, if it wasn't for Baghdad keeping many of the classical records, we wouldn't know about so much of ancient Roman and Greece. So it's an interesting comparison to make for those who like to look at religious history. But to go back to Charlemagne, he obviously spent much of his reign, as most kings at that stage did, and going around conquering other people and trying to keep his empire together, right? Yeah, 100% correct. Early on, he suffered one defeat. He went into the Saracens, which is northern Spain, and against the Saracens, and they managed to reach an agreement. So Charlemagne turned around, took his uh, army back out of what is Spain today through the Pyrenees, and he went through a, a narrow pass, and then he was attacked not by the Saracens, but by another tribe. And his nephew, Roland, was killed. And there's a big epic that's come around that. It's actually the Song of Roland, which has come out of that. And, and, and they used to sing that when they used to go on crusades much later on. They used that almost like Homer and Troy. But it was like the fake news of that period because what they said in the ode was Charlemagne came back and avenged the death of Roland. But actually he didn't. He wasn't in the area. He didn't go back. So in other words, propaganda. A hundred percent, yes. He did conquer the Lombard kingdom, and this is interesting because the Lombards were in the north of Italy, uh, Liguria and that area. And obviously, this was a big deal because those parts of the world had fallen into disarray after the collapse of the Roman Empire. And the Pope played an important role in Charlemagne's life. I mean, Pope Leo famously crowned him on Christmas Day 
in the year 800. You couldn't wish for a more auspicious number than that. And this was a very big deal. Pope Leo III had been assaulted by some Romans. They were actually going to put out his eyes and tear out his tongue. Nice people. And he escaped and fled to Charlemagne. Charlemagne was outraged by this and decided, no, he's going to go back to Rome, reinstall this pope. And the pope, almost as a reward to Charlemagne, but also to increase his own power as the head of the papacy, decided to arrange an elaborate coronation in the Vatican, which he then held with crowns and jewels. And Charlemagne was actually very much opposed to this idea. He didn't like the idea of a big spectacle. He apparently never wore ostentatious outfits. He would dress up when he had to for, you know, high Christian days and so on. But this was not his favorite thing to do. So both he and the Pope, by doing this, obviously increased their power. Ceremony was a hugely evocative thing in those days. As we discussed already, people were very religious. So by Charlemagne doing this with the Pope, they almost created a a new normal for Europe. If we read into that, yes, Charlemagne was definitely looking for power, like so many of our great people in history. But he had a different side in that he had this divine purpose. And that was critical to him. So the angle of the Holy Roman Emperor, I think, sat very easily on his head. And it was apt because he felt that was one of his main purposes in his life was to bring Christianity to as many places as possible. Yeah, I I think that Charlemagne in that moment probably took control of destiny. And, you know, there's an interesting thing that happens in genealogy, which is one of my other hobbies. That's the, the tracing of family trees. One of the great achievements in genealogy is being able to show that you descend from Charlemagne. And many, in fact, probably all of the royal houses of Europe today trace their origins to Charlemagne in the 800s AD. It's a very long time ago, and it's got to a point where that's almost like the goal of most genealogists is to get to that. There are volumes of books published on the descendants of Charlemagne. I've actually got a few of them in my library here. And the guy at the front of it says, this book is not a superficial collection of elaborate pedigrees. It contains the true facts in regard to the names known in history and of many families who have contributed in some way, great or small, to the development of our culture, progress and government. Furthermore, in these pages, there may be found corrections of a multitude of errors without challenge in other genealogical works. And then he goes on to say that this is really the high point of what genealogists try to achieve. So he was the fountain of all of that stuff, which is still held in such high regard in Europe now. I think, Gareth, that what he'd built and set up didn't last very long, but the legacy was massive. You know, after Louis the Pious, his son, took over, it just fell apart. He had a number of wives and a number of concubines and a number of descendants, but you just mentioned Louis the Pious, who was the only real heir left at the end of the day the only legitimate one anyway. Some of these names are absolutely dreadful. Rawtrude, Bertha, Gisela, Hildegard, Himmeltrude, which I already mentioned. Some of the names, his brother Carloman, that was also the name of one of his sons, who was renamed as Pepin, king of Italy. Lulagard. Some, some of these names are really, give you an idea again of the times. And it didn't sound like French then, and it didn't sound like German then. And Charlemagne was probably the only time in history that Germany and France were under one king. He had four wives and 
tons of mistresses. I think that was like in those days. But he didn't let his daughters marry. He overlooked all their affairs, but he didn't let the daughters marry. I think mainly because of dilution of power and he was worried what the impact would be. And I think yeah. he really tried hard, uh, Gareth, in building a legacy. Uh, Louis became co-emperor with him shortly before his death. So he really tried to provide you know, a platform to go forward into the future. He's buried, as you already said, in Aachen, which in the French language they call Et la Chapelle. And you can actually go and see his shrine, which is there. It's a, it's a gold and silver chest in which his body lies. But there is also an arm reliquary in which there's an arm bone of Charlemagne's, which is regarded as holy because he was sanctified later on by a pope. And it's amazing that someone that lived 1,300 years ago, effectively, can still be such an important influence on what eventually became the EU. I mean, you know, in many ways, Belgium was also part of his empire. And the place where Europe is run from is just a few kilometers north of where Charlemagne is buried and where he was born. It's interesting that the European Union might eventually prove to be the ultimate fruit of his loins. The other point, as an example that I mentioned a little bit earlier, was Napoleon. He said, I am Charlemagne. And the Nazis used it in different ways. Initially, they used it as propaganda because, you know, Charlemagne wasn't a saint. I suppose he was in the end, but he ordered the execution of 4,500 Saxons in 782. And so the, the Nazis used that as serious propaganda. But also, on the other hand, they named one of the fighting troops after Charlemagne. I think they call it the Schutzstaffel, which was the SS during World War II, was named the Charlemagne Regiment down in France. So very interesting. Uh, people still speak about him so highly. Yeah, they say that all modern Europeans are highly likely to share Charlemagne as a common ancestor. That was actually discussed in a, an episode of QI not so long ago. Ultimately, if you are of Western European stock, you probably have a bit of Charlemagne in you. Or Genghis. <laughs> or Genghis. So that links to our previous episode, which I think is fascinating. There he is, Charlemagne, the father of Europe. Pater Europei. Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I remember in the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade movie, you remember Indiana Jones' father, um, mm. Henry? He uses his umbrella to induce a flock of seagulls to smash through the glass cockpit of a pursuing German fighter plane. So he says there, I suddenly remembered my Charlemagne. Let my armies be the rocks and the trees and the birds in the sky. Now, despite the, this, this popularity of this quote since the movie, there's no actual evidence that he actually said this, but it's nice to think that he might have. And the interesting thing about Charlemagne, excuse me, this dog is scratching at the door. Just hold on. Carl, what are you doing? Little shit. The dog's name is Carl. I know, na I mean, named after Charlemagne. Exactly, because the Germans call him Karl. Karl de Grosse, yeah. Yeah. Karl the Small is the one who interrupted us.